I'm the only climate scientist for 200 miles around. And I figure if you can talk about climate change here in oil and gas and farming country, where when they have an election, they have a Republican candidate and then they have a conservative Republican candidate <laughs> who spends their whole time saying how, how liberal and, and what a tool of the government the Republican is. If we can talk about climate change here, we can talk about it anywhere. Engaging any audience on the subject of climate change is a twofold challenge. One is that the problem is so huge that it's easy to decide that there's really not all that much that can be done. The other is that the solutions are so complex and incremental that it is equally easy to zone out of them. This week's guest believes that there is a much more positive and constructive way of looking at all of this, scientifically and politically. Catherine Hayhoe is chief scientist at the Nature Conservancy and a professor of political science at Texas Tech University. Catherine's latest book is Saving Us, a climate scientist's case for hope and healing in a divided world. I'm Andrew Muller and I spoke to Catherine Hayhoe on The Big Interview. Catherine Hayhoe, welcome to The Big Interview. Thank you for having me. I want to start right at the start of your new book, Saving Our City. It is quite the opening line you lead with there. I quote, I'm getting used to being hated. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? That was probably the biggest surprise to me of becoming a climate scientist <laughs> is the fact that I was signing up to be regularly abused on a daily basis by people who see the simple facts that climate is changing and humans are responsible, the impacts are serious and action is needed now as direct threats to their identity. I mean, a big part of what the book is about is how to react, if not necessarily to abuse, hatred, loathing, threats, etc., but but that scepticism that is still at large despite those facts. Why did you think it was important to write this book? Were you hoping to issue a, a manual for people to be able to take into the field? Well, the reason I wrote the book is because no matter who I've been speaking to, no matter where it is, whether it's in the UK or Canada or Australia or the United States or Europe, whether I'm speaking to school children or grandparents or church groups or university audiences, for the last three or four years, no matter where I've been, no matter who I've been speaking to, I hear the same two questions again and again. And it got to the point where I was hearing them on a nearly daily basis. And those two questions were, what gives you hope? And how do I talk to my family, my colleagues, my neighbor, my coworkers about this? And so that's why I decided to write the book, to answer those two questions. I mean, I do have those two questions or variations there on written down here on my big list of questions, and, and we will get to them in due course. But does it strike you in Texas in particular, which is obviously one of the more conservative US states, that it is harder to do what you do? Oh, 100%. <laughs> in fact, being in not only one of the most conservative states in the United States, but one of the most conservative cities in the whole country, that's where I live in West Texas, I think it's actually the perfect place to be a climate scientist. I'm the only climate scientist for 200 miles around. And I figure if you can talk about climate change here 
in oil and gas and farming country, where when they have an election, they have a Republican candidate, and then they have a conservative Republican candidate <laughs> who spends their whole time saying how, how liberal and, and what a tool of the government the Republican is. If we can talk about climate change here, we can talk about it anywhere. And in my book, I talk about the very first lecture that I gave at Texas Tech University. When I moved here, they actually wanted my husband, and I was the plus one they had to put up with to get my husband as a linguist. And I'm a Canadian, so moving to the US, I moved to a different country, and then moving to Texas, I moved to another different country. Mm. And the very first lecture that I gave at Texas Tech, which was on the topic of carbon dioxide and the geological history of the Earth, after I finished, I tell the story in the book, I asked hopefully for any questions. And it was an early morning class, so most of the undergraduates were dozing, sort of <laughs> hunched over their phones or their computers. But one hand popped up. I thought, oh, somebody's been listening. So I said, yes. And he stood up, and in a belligerent tone, he said, are you a Democrat? And I was so floored, I didn't know what to do or what to say or why he even asked that question. So all I could think of to say is, no, I'm Canadian. <laughs> and then I went away thinking about it, and it took a while for the penny to drop, but I realized that he had never heard someone say that climate was changing and humans were responsible, as I said in you know the last minute and a half of the lecture, because climate change is and has been for the last 10 or 15 years the most politically polarized issue in the whole United States. But that right there's the problem, isn't it? That people tend to judge the issue on who is making the statement rather than on the case itself. They decide, is this person part of my tribe or not, before they listen to what they're saying. Well, you are exactly right. We humans do not make our decisions like Plato's ideal man, where we gather all the facts and then we decide rationally and logically and our emotions follow. No. As Jonathan Haidt says in his really interesting book called The Righteous Mind, we make our decisions emotionally, often based on what people who we share a lot of our identity and culture with think about it. And then we use our brain to go out and engage in what's called motivated reasoning, basically looking for evidence to justify why we're right. And when it comes to climate change, that's a huge problem because a hurricane does not knock on the door of your house before it destroys it. A wildfire doesn't ask who you voted for <laughs> before it burns down your neighborhood. And so that is why the importance of the messenger, that's why I decided to start telling people that I was a Christian. It felt very uncomfortable to begin with because we scientists are sort of trained to leave our personality at the door, so to speak. But I figured I had to start with something I, I shared and had in common with people because I thought maybe if I showed them that the reasons I care so profoundly about climate change are because of the values that we learn from our Christian faith, maybe they might feel the same way too. I mean, it is often uh, assumed, I think, that science and faith in complete opposite to each other and that they are perpetually doomed to butt heads. Have you always found that there's no contradiction or no difficulty in embracing both at once? I grew up with the perspective, being that my dad was a science teacher and a teacher in our local church, that if we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God and we believe that the universe is God's created word, so to speak, how could the two be in conflict? How could theology and science be in conflict with each other if they come from the same source? Now, I'm not naive. I know that there's certainly a perception of conflict, but 
Isn't that perception because of our limited understanding and interpretation, our very thick cultural glasses that we read the Bible and or we interpret science with, and aren't we constantly learning? And so with a little humility and patience, sometimes those perceived conflicts can be reconciled. Sometimes we just don't know enough right now to reconcile them. But if we start from the premise that there cannot be any fundamental conflict between the two, then we end up in a very different place than if we begin with the idea that somehow they're enemies of each other. I mean, have you, as you've come through your career in science, encountered hostility from other scientists because of your faith? Do you find yourself feeling like you're being taken less seriously because of it? I'm, I'm trying to figure out whether that has informed what you figured out about how to talk to people about climate, if you've perhaps been used to being uh, talked down to or marginalised yourself. Well, it's like you read my mind, because that was exactly my fear when... I started to realize maybe I should be telling people why I care about climate change because they might share it too. I thought, but if, if I tell my colleagues that I'm a Christian, they'll think I've left my brain at the door. But I looked at what was happening with the world and I looked at how important it is to move people in countries like the United States and in important uh, voting blocks like Christians, not only in the US, but in Australia and my home country of Canada and the UK and beyond. And I thought, you know what? I think it's worth it. I think it's worth it to do that because we have to fix this together. And if we don't, we're never going to be able to tackle climate change. So I took a deep breath and <laughs> I decided over 12 years ago to write a book with my husband, who's a pastor. He said, I'm getting all kinds of questions from people in my congregation and the radio show that I do about how do we know it's real and why does it matter? And there's no resource out there at that time to direct them to. So why don't we write a book together? I'll line out all the questions that need to be answered and then you answer them. So I thought to myself, all right, we'll do this. So we wrote this book and I thought, again, that I had just flushed my career down the toilet. <laughs> I was prepared for complete and utter rejection from the scientific community. And I thought, well, at least my husband has a tenured position at the university. We can always live off his salary. <laughs> and here's what happened. And I have to say, I humbly that I was so wrong and I misjudged my colleagues so profoundly because I can count literally on the fingers of my hands the number of scientific colleagues who have in any way denigrated me or my work because I tell people I'm a Christian. Instead, I would need all my toes and all my fingers to count the colleagues who in the course of a single month go out of their way to say, I don't share your faith, but I completely support what you're doing. Or I do share your faith and I'm using your materials in my church to help bring people along. But here's what happened that I didn't anticipate at all. And looking back, I have to say it was very naive not to. Every single day, I receive abuse and hatred and all kinds of insults and slurs from people who self-identify as Christian. Yet somehow they think it's okay to have verses about God is love in their social media profile while they're calling me the whore of Babylon <laughs> or Jezebel. And so it, the reaction was completely different. Incredible, overwhelming support from the scientific community from people who say, again, you know, I don't share your faith or I do have a faith. And you've encouraged me to think about how I could reach out to my community, whether it's Muslims or whether they're Jewish, whether they're Catholic or Protestant overwhelming support there. But on the other hand, climate change is so polar, politically polarized that people who identify as Christians these days, often their statement of faith is written by their politics rather than their faith. 
And anyone who goes against their political ideology is branded and treated as a heretic. And do you think that's just it, though, where the denialism comes from, that it is just tribalism? I, I do want to get to what your book's about, which is how you overcome that and how you talk to these people. But you must have acquired by now some thoughts on where the denialism comes from. Is it just, I guess, the incantations of the tribal rituals? Do you think it is just basic obdurate mendacity and stupidity? Or or is there that you've encountered actual principled objection to the science? Well, at first, as a scientist, I was very curious if there was principled objection. And so I teamed up with a group of other scientists, and we went through all the scientific studies that have been published in the last 10 years. We found 38 of them out of thousands that purported to show that either the planet wasn't warming or humans weren't responsible. And we reanalyzed every single one of those 38 papers from scratch. And you know what we found? (laughs) We found at least one error in every single one of them that if you fix that mistake, it brought it right in line with the scientific evidence. And that makes sense because the science that explains how digging up and burning fossil fuels produces heat trapping gases that are building up in the atmosphere, wrapping an extra blanket around the planet. It is the exact same physics that explains how refrigerators cool food, how stoves heat food, and how airplanes fly. And I have met many people who purport to reject the science of climate change, but not a single one of those reject airplanes, stoves, and fridges. (laughs) So where does this denial come from? Well, here's the interesting thing. Even in the United States in the 1990s, there was no difference between conservatives and liberals on climate change. No difference. In other words, these objections to the science didn't exist 25 years ago. But the science of climate change has been with us since the 1800s. So where did it come from? It was manufactured. By who? By those who did not want us to fix the problem. There's an excellent documentary and book called Merchants of Doubt that explains how, just like the tobacco industry manufactured doubt over the connection between smoking, lung disease, and cancer, The same spin doctors were then hired on by the fossil fuel industry to manufacture doubt over 200 years of physics in order to what? To delay the solutions. And so what is climate denial? It is simply solution aversion. I don't want to fix it. But if I don't want to fix a global problem that disproportionately affects the poorest and most vulnerable people on the planet and could end human civilization as we know it, that would make me a bad person. And most of us don't really want to see ourselves, let alone let others see us as a bad person. So we engage in that motivated reasoning I talked about earlier, where we go out and we think of reasons why, find reasons why we must be right. And on social media, it's easy to find a YouTube video saying those scientists are just in it for the money. Or it's easy to find a blog post saying it's just a natural cycle. But we've checked and it really isn't. It truly is us. It really is bad. Action now truly can make a difference. And that's why I wrote my book, to help everybody see through the smoke screens of sciencey sounding denial to the real issue, which is people don't know what to do to fix it. And once we realize we can be part of the solution, and one of my favorite stories in the book is about John Cook's dad and how he changed his mind. When we realize we can be part of the solution as John's dad did when he got solar panels on his roof and started to save a ton of money, (laughs) it completely flips us around. And in fact, John's dad, two years later, said to him, you know, 
oh, global warming, it's so serious. And I've always thought that. And John, who went back to school and got a PhD in cognitive psychology and became a worldwide expert in science denial because of his father's rejection of climate science, John said he fell off his chair. It wasn't his PhD and his arguments that changed his dad's mind. It was simply the fact that his dad felt like he could be part of the solution. And as soon as he felt like he was part of the solution to climate change, his objections to the science evaporated. Well, I mean, that appropriately Damascene moment seems a, a, a good point to talk about. Well, well, to pivot from having outed yourself as a Christian to scientists to outing yourself as a scientist to Christians, when you do explain uh, where you're coming from, where climate change is concerned to church groups, to Christian groups, to people who are members of the other tribe where climate change is concerned. What is your pitch to a, a Christian audience? Is, is it that one of being, you know, we are here as stewards to God's creation, or is there is, is there something more, I guess, everyday and micro you can tell them? It depends on the focus of the church. Some are more focused on stewardship and being caretakers of creation. Others are more focused on caring for the poor and the vulnerable, whether it's a soup kitchen in central London or people living in sub-Saharan Africa without access to clean water or sanitation or electricity. So there's different reasons why we can care, but the focus, the most effective way to begin those conversations is with what we both agree on most. And so, for example, Tear Fund is a Christian charity based in Scotland, and they work in some of the poorest countries in the world. And I helped them develop a series of videos that now over 150 churches in Scotland have seen. And those churches have reached back to Tear Fund and said, we get it now. We always thought it was one of those issues that didn't matter to us, but because we started the conversation with our shared values, we understand how we, who we already are, are the perfect people to care. Now, this approach can be generalized. It doesn't have to begin with shared faith-based values. I often talk to people from the perspective of being a mom. And I talk about how much I care about my child and the future that they're inheriting and how their health is being affected and how the you know, incredible um, beauty of this world and the safety of the world they live in is being affected by climate change. I'm a skier. And so I connect with other people who need winter snow for sports. And you know, that new study just came out recently showing that very soon, there'll only be a handful of winter Olympic venues that will be viable, that will have enough snow anymore. So that's a place that I start conversations with. And so in my book, I encourage people to take an inventory of who they are. And who are you? Where do you live? What do you love? Who do you love? And that's where you can begin the conversation. You might begin the conversation with tennis or football, as some of my fellow scientists do in the UK. You might begin your conversation as one man who reviewed my book, who he'd worked in, in climate communication for years. He was part of the skeptical science team that John Cook put together to document over 200 sciencey sounding myths about climate change and give thorough answers to all of those. He'd been immersed in this community for over a decade and he said he had never realized that he could connect what he was most passionate about outside of his work, which was deep sea fishing off the coast of Wales, he could connect that to climate change. Because we see fish populations moving northward at an incredible rate. We see oceans warming, we see seasons shifting, and he had never thought to start a conversation with the people who shared his passion for deep sea fishing on how climate change mattered to them. So even those of us who have been in this for a long time, there's new opportunities to have those conversations. And in my book, I point out how the most effective people to have the conversation with 
is not the tiny fraction of dismissives who are constantly arguing and picking fights and posting on social media. In the United States, those dismissives are only 7% of the population. In the UK and Canada and Australia, they're there too, a bit less. They're there, but they're not the ones who need us. The vast majority of us are already worried about climate change. Over three quarters of us are worried about climate change, but we don't know what to do. Only a fraction of us are activated. And so the most important conversations we can have are with people who might already be worried, but they don't know what to do. They don't know why it matters. And that's where our conversations come in. I think the most important chapter I wrote is the chapter on guilt. Mm. The chapter on how all too often we resort to finger pointing, to guilting, to judging, to try to change other people's behavior. And most of us are just trying to get by. In this pandemic that never seems to end, we are just trying to keep, keep a grip on our mental health, put food on the, family for our, uh, on the table for our families, get our kids to school or somehow take care of them during the fifth time they've been taken out of school due to COVID. We are just trying to get by. And the last thing we need is somebody judging us, pointing fingers at us and guilting us for putting the can in the wrong bin or for, you know, you using a car to get somewhere instead of public transportation or for what we feed our family. We don't need any more of that. I'm not out to change anyone's personal lifestyle. We're out to change the world and we have to do that together. And how do we do that together? By showing people how we can be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And I have to say, I don't know, have you seen that, that Netflix movie, Don't Look Up, that came out a little while ago? I have not as yet. I'm sorry, are we, uh, are we not being clear? We're trying to tell you that the entire planet is about to be destroyed. Okay. okay. Um, well, it's, um, you know, just something we do around here. You know, we just keep the bad news light. Right, it helps the medicine go down. And speaking of medicine, tomorrow we've got a two-part- Well, maybe the destruction of the entire planet isn't supposed to be fun. Maybe it's supposed to be terrifying and unsettling. Oh. Please don't do that. And you should stay up Please. all night, every night, crying. When we're all 100% for sure gonna fucking die! Well, it is, of course, a metaphor for climate change mm. about how a, a comet is hitting the earth and scientists are trying to warn people and they keep pointing at all the science and it just doesn't move the needle fast enough. Don't Look Up has just put out an action website <laughs> and I help them work on it. And that action website is the six most important things that we can do as individuals. And number one, number two, number three, number four, five, six, none of them are changing your light bulbs or recycling. Number one is talk about it. Number two is join an organization in a group that shares your values, that advocates for change. Number three is look at where you put your money and what that's accomplishing. Um, number four is use your voice to advocate in your workplace that your work could change. And so if you're wondering in a conversation, well, how do I talk about why it matters and what I can do to fix it? Do an inventory of who you are, what you love. In my book, I talk about how, you know, you can start conversations over knitting or shared love of beer or wine or food or beach vacations. And then bring in some concrete steps that you can do to be part of the solution. And that Don't Look Up website, as well as the book, Saving Us, are great places to get some ideas on that.
I mean, is there anything to be said, do you think, for an appeal, not necessarily to selfishness, although in many respects combating climate change is a, a broadly selfish thing for humanity to want to do, because we're not going to have anywhere to live if we don't combat it, but... Uh, an appeal, I, I guess you could almost call it to avarice, because there are, though there will certainly be costs and difficulties involved in attacking climate change, there is surely extraordinary fortunes to be made in doing it if people get it right, which I would have thought was a case you could probably make. And I'm amazed that more conservative politicians in the US, especially in Texas, are not trying to make. Well, it's very interesting because I just read a headline the other day that a well-known climate-denying politician from Texas has been known to invest very heavily in electric vehicles, even though <laughs> he pans them publicly. So so I, th I think Elon Musk has shown people that it's possible to get very rich on new technology. And speaking personally, at this point in history, I do not care what motivates people to get on board. If it is self selflessness and sacrifice, welcome aboard. If it is selfishness, but you're willing to get on board with climate action, come along. We need everybody on board and whatever it takes to get that, that giant boulder rolling down the hill faster in the right direction, we need it all. People often say to me, well, we have so many problems. We need to fix science education, or we need to fix capitalism, or we need to fix our socioeconomic inequalities before we fix climate change. And my answer to them is this, if we don't fix climate change, it will fix us. There is no possibility of fixing anything that is wrong with our society and our world if we do not fix climate change because it is the hole in every single bucket we have. But conversely, many climate solutions are also justice and equity solutions. Many climate solutions also clean up our air and our water and restore our natural ecosystems. Many climate solutions address issues of socioeconomic inequity, racial inequity, providing good jobs for people who are losing them as the economy evolves. So we need to look for those win-win-win climate solutions. They're out there. The only question is, why are we not doing them? And that's a big part of what we can use our voices to advocate for in our place of work, in our city, and in our country. I occasionally bleakly wonder that it's the very fact that some of these solutions are associated with wider justice that makes so many people actually hostile to them. I think maybe you could actually get quite a lot of people on board if you could somehow persuade them that it would all make Greta Thunberg really unhappy. Well, I joked one time that, you know, if you wanted people in the US to get vaccinated, you just need Hillary Clinton to go on TV and tell everybody that they weren't allowed to get vaccinated, that she that, that they weren't supposed to, and that everybody would just be running to the, to the clinics to get vaccinated. So I think there's a, a bit of truth in that irony, though I'm definitely saying it tongue in cheek. But we have to show people that whoever they already are, whatever values they already have, whatever ideology they already adhere to, it makes them the perfect person to care about climate risks and to advocate for climate solutions. And I truly believe we can do that with almost anyone. And how do we start that process? By using our voice. We are coming to the end of our time. So I'll close with a question which I suspect our listeners may already have guessed the answer to and which does feel like a somewhat redundant one to ask somebody who has set themselves up as a campaigning climate scientist in West Texas of all places. Are you basically, despite everything, optimistic? I practice what I refer to as active hope. And that is where I begin with realizing it's bad and it's likely to get worse. The science is very clear. 
But the science is also clear in the words of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that every action matters, every choice matters, every bit of warming matters. And so I go out and I look for hope every day. And when I find it, I share it. And where do I find that hope? In every single person who is acting, in those millions of hands that are on that boulder, pushing it down the hill, in all the people who worked on the Don't Look Up movie for Netflix to get the message out on climate change and climate action, in um, the girl who emails me and says, I'm doing a school project on climate change, could you, could you help me out with some references? In the senior citizens who are banding together and advocating for climate action, in every single person who, if you go out and look for it, they're there who are taking climate action and making a difference, that's where I find hope. And when you go out and look for it, you will find it. And to end in the words of Greta Thunberg here, which I think are very <laughs> appropriate, she said, the one thing we need more than hope is action because when we act, hope is all around us. Catherine Hayhoe, thank you for joining me on the big interview on Monocle 24. Catherine's new book, Saving Us, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope and Healing in a Divided World, is available now in hardcover. That's it for this edition of The Big Interview. It was produced by Emma Searle and edited by Steph Chungu. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>